would invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. Again, you can find it on page 1021 in the red Bibles around you. Beginning a new sermon series on uh, this letter, uh, the first letter of John. And as we do that, we begin uh, looking at this letter and notice that it's a very atypical way that letters are written even in the New Testament. As we come uh, to 1 John and we begin reading the first four verses, which is what we'll look at today, we see there, there's no salutation, there's no uh, kind of introduction in that way. There's really no indication of who the author is or who the recipients are. And, and if you've read it before, even in the English, especially in the Greek, it is kind of a convoluted way of beginning uh, the first uh, part of this book. We don't get to the main verb until verse 3. We proclaim is really the main verb. And sometimes it might be helpful to think of those two words first as we begin reading in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this portion of your word. And as we embark on a new study into it, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to see and to believe what you want us to see and believe. Father, send the Holy Spirit into our lives and form us and shape us into greater conformity with your will. Make us look more and more like our Savior. Help us, Father, to believe the truth of the gospel. And as we do that, would you help our sense of the fellowship that we have with you to increase and the fellowship that we have with one another to increase as well. Fill us with an immeasurable joy. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, have you ever watched a movie more than once? Or ever read a book more than once? Now, why would you do that? Once you've watched the movie, once you've read the book, you know the plot, you know what's going to happen, you know what the end result is. You know how it's going to finish, how it's going to end. Now, there might be lots of reasons why you might watch a movie a second time or read a book a second time. But one of the things that happens when we do that is because we know the end, because we know the trajectory that the book or the movie is going on, we actually... Uh, might pick up some things that we didn't get the first time as we watch the movie or read the book again. It might help us to understand things in a different way. And I would suggest to you that that's also true here with First John. Sometimes it's helpful to know the ending or to know the purpose for the book before we even begin. 
And John actually helps us to know what his purpose is. Now, he'll he'll actually say several different kind of things throughout the book that gives us a sense of his purpose. But at the end of his letter, he comes to kind of give us his big picture purpose, the, the end result, the goal that he is writing for. If you'll turn just a couple of pages to the end of the book, chapter five and verse 13, listen to what John says is his purpose. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what John's goal is. That's the purpose of this letter. That we would read these words so that we would know that we have eternal life. John is talking about an assurance He's talking about a certainty that the gospel is true, that God's love for us is unconditional, that eternal life is our inheritance. And we need to be reminded of these truths over and over and over again. That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through these books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, before we jump in and look at this specific introduction to the book, Let's just get some basic details about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John out of the way. First of all, who wrote them? Well, we call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But you'll notice that there's actually no direct indication in the letters themselves about who wrote it. The church, from very early on, as early as the 2nd century A.D., has been almost unanimous That it was John the Apostle, John, Jesus' disciple, the son of Zebedee, who wrote all three of these letters. As we read it, we will see that that certainly fits with the language that goes all through these books. Even just these first four verses of 1 John. How much it reminds us of the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and the first 18 verses. John lived until his 80s, possibly even into his late 90s. And he wrote this letter late in life. So I want you to think about an elderly John, maybe 85 to 95 years old, based on all of his experience, all of his wisdom, his time with Jesus, sitting down and writing this letter. Who is he writing to? Well, again, there's no direct indication in the letters themselves. But we do know that John lived the very last part of his life in Ephesus. It's very likely that John was writing to the church in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, or to churches that were in the area of Ephesus. And we know that he knew these people well. He speaks of them tenderly. He he speaks of them as his dear, beloved children. He had a, a great heart for these people. The city of Ephesus, you may remember, was a major city in Asia Minor. During the time that John was writing, there may have been as many as 250,000 people in the area. It was a major center for trade and economic growth. It was known for having the temple of Artemis in it, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was known as a place of wealth and power and fame and culture, but also a place of immorality and superstition and idolatry and Gnosticism. So why was John writing these letters? Well, again, he doesn't state it as such right at the beginning, but he does. As we look at all of the letters, we do get a picture that starts to come through of of what was going on. We remember remember back to Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, the elders at the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. 
Long before John wrote these words, Paul warned the elders at Ephesus that savage wolves would come in and wreck and, and, and cause destruction in the church. And Paul was right. The church that John was writing to was dealing with false teachers. They're called deceivers. They're even called antichrists by John. They had caused division in the church. They had caused confusion in the church. The people had been shaken. They had been filled with doubts and uncertainty and a lack of the assurance of their faith. These false prophets, as we will see as we work our way through these letters, denied that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Likely they had been influenced by Gnosticism that taught the physical, the body is bad. The spirit is good. And so they taught, these false prophets taught that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Jesus, God didn't come in the flesh. He didn't achieve atonement for sins on the cross. To come in a body would be evil, would be bad. They also taught that it didn't really matter what you did in the body because that didn't really count as much. It was just your spirit. And so you could sin in your body as long as you kept a good fellowship with God in your spirit. These false teachers had left the church in Ephesus and taken a lot of the people with them. And John was now writing this letter to those who were left to encourage them, to strengthen them, to give them an assurance, to remind them that they can know that they have eternal life. Now what we're going to see is we know that that's where, where John is going, that they and we might know we have eternal life. We can see even today that we have a true and a certain assurance of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, partly because of the content of the gospel itself, but also because of the fruit of the gospel. So let's look at those two things. First of all, we can have assurance because of the content of the gospel. Now, who was John talking about in these first four verses? Well, how does he describe the one that he's speaking of? At the end of verse 1, he refers to, the, refers to him as the, 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 the word of life. Now, that's a very common John phrase. It shows up lots of times in his gospel, in various ways, and in his letters. And it takes us back to his gospel. In the first chapter of the gospel, where John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can also remember John's uh, recording of Jesus' words in John 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, we're told that the life was made manifest. The word manifest there means that it became visible, that it was made known, that it was in plain sight. And then at the end of verse 3, he references the Father, Son, Jesus Christ. John is speaking about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that he also describes what he was and what he is. He says at the beginning of verse 1, that which was from the beginning. This one, Jesus, who came, was divine. He was God. He was from the beginning. It takes us back again to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus existed before His incarnation. Before Jesus came and walked on the earth, 
He was from the beginning. He has eternally existed. But John says he's not only divine, he is human. The divine came into the world, took on flesh and became one of us and was experienced by our senses. Did you notice here in verse 2 that John is using almost legal language? The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, he says. And that day, if you had to go to court and prove something in a court of law, then you would have to show how it had been seen and how it had been heard, how it could be touched, how it could be closely examined. And notice what John says about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, And have touched with our hands. Verse 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testified to it. And proclaimed to you the eternal life. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. John saying we have have seen Jesus. We have heard him talk. We have heard him teach. We have heard what he has said. We have touched him. And we have looked upon him. Now, that that word there in the Greek is actually pretty important because he already said that we've seen him. So what's it mean that he goes on and says, and we've looked upon him? It doesn't just mean that that we see him, that we turned our eyes and see him. The Greek word there for looked upon, it, it has this idea of closely examining. I had an example of this. Uh, not too long ago, Stephanie, my wife, uh, sent me to the store to get some tomatoes. Uh, I'm not a super big fan of tomatoes, and I certainly don't know what a good tomato is versus a bad tomato unless it's completely rotten. But she said, and she knows that, and so she sent me to the store uh, to get a couple of tomatoes for a very specific purpose. And so I had very specific instructions for what I was supposed to get. I, I was supposed to get tomatoes that had certain characteristics, but not these characteristics over here. And as I went to the store and I got to the produce section, I looked up and there was this massive vat of tomatoes, hundreds of tomatoes, literally. I had to closely examine to get the right ones. Not this one, but this one. It's that kind of sense that John is saying. We have, we have closely examined Jesus, he says. We, we, have, we have looked at him carefully. We have listened to him. We have heard him. We have seen him and we have touched him. We have looked upon him. Now remember the problem that John was addressing here. These false teachers that said God didn't become a man. That was impossible. God is a spirit and it's physically bad to become a body. That's what the Gnostics were teaching. That's what these false teachers were teaching. And John is directly addressing and correcting that error at the very get-go of his book. In fact, he says, God did become man. And we have heard him and seen him and examined him and touched him. And the incarnation is true. But notice John also talks about what Jesus accomplished as he was, as he came into this world. Again, Remember what John said about Jesus. The end of verse 1, he is the word of life. And at the end of verse 2, in the coming of Jesus, eternal life with the Father was made manifest to us. It was revealed to us. Eternal life was revealed to us in the incarnation of Jesus. The end of verse 3, 
With Jesus' coming into the world and accomplishing the work that He did, He has enabled us to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. John is saying the Word came into this world. It was made manifest to us. God took on flesh. And in the work that He accomplished while He was in this world, He secured fellowship between us and God. He undid the spiritual separation that we had with God that was caused by Adam and Eve in the garden. What is John talking about here? He is talking about nothing less than the gospel of God's grace and mercy to us. And what John is saying to us is that we can know that we have eternal life because of the content of the gospel. This is why we have assurance. It's because the gospel is true. Jesus really lived. God himself really did come into this world and took on the flesh of man. Jesus was fully God and fully man, like us in every way and yet without sin. He really did live a life of perfect love and obedience to His Father in heaven. And then He really did die on the cross to pay for the sins of all of His people, removing our debt with God and crediting us with His righteousness. And brothers and sisters in Christ, on the basis of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection... By faith in Him, we get adopted into God's family and have an eternal inheritance. Since our status with our Father in Heaven is based on Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection for us, there is nothing we can do to lose that status. That's why our Westminster Confession of Faith talks about how we can have an infallible assurance Our status before God Almighty is objective, it is certain, it is finished, it is completed. We can have assurance because of the content of the gospel of God's grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that John also talks about the fact that we can have an assurance not just because of the content of the gospel, but because of the fruit that comes from the gospel. Look again at verse 3. John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Did you see uh, John's point here? We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that... You too can have fellowship with us, even as we all have fellowship with our Father in heaven. In other words, what John is saying is, one of the fruits of the gospel, one of the things that the gospel of grace produces is fellowship. Fellowship with the Lord. That's what he says there, fellowship with the Father and with the Son. What does it mean to have fellowship with the Lord? Well, some of you may know that that word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. It's not a... Actually, very uh, used word that often. It's not used that often in John's writings or even in the New Testament. It's It's a word that means having a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. It's having communion with someone or something. It's being in a close relationship with someone. You see what John is saying here? That because of the gospel, we are in relationship with the Lord. We have fellowship with the Lord God Almighty. And as we meditate on that truth, it is meant to strengthen our assurance of faith. I want you to think about it this way. Think about, think about the relationships that you have with people, particularly the relationships that you like. 
the, the relationships that you enjoy. You're in those relationships because you want to be. Because you want to celebrate that joy that you have in that relationship. And if you are in Christ, the Lord has determined before the foundation of the world that He would be in a relationship with you because He wants to be. He has determined before the foundation of the world that He will love you because He loves you. He has determined before the foundation of the world that He will enjoy you and be satisfied with you because He loves you. It's not because of what you can do for Him. It's not because of your efforts or, or, or goodness or righteousness. It's not because of the family that you come from. It's not about how impressive or successful you are. It is simply because He has set His love on you from before the foundation of the world. He has de- determined to be in fellowship with you. To be in relationship with you. Now I want you to understand that there's an objective sense to that. There's a status that we have in our relationship with God that has nothing to do with us. It has to do with Christ. It has to do with what Christ has done on our behalf. Because of the finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the grave and His ascension into heaven, we now have fellowship with God. That is an objective reality. It is the status that does not change because it's not based on us. It's based on Christ. So there's an objective sense that if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are in fellowship with the Lord God Almighty. But I also want you to have a sense of the subjectiveness of our fellowship with our Father. What's the condition of your relationship with your Father in heaven? How are you doing in your fellowship with your Father in heaven? Is it a healthy relationship? What are you doing to strengthen your relationship with the Lord? Are you making use of the tools that God has given to us that we might grow in our relationship and fellowship with the Lord? It's both objective as well as subjective. John's talking about the fact that because of the gospel, one of the fruits of that is that we have fellowship with the Lord. But notice he also says it's not just a vertical fellowship that we have as a result of the gospel. It's also a vertical fellowship that we have with one another. Again, in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is a vertical fellowship. It's a key theme throughout John's letters in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And we'll come back to it over and over again. The fruit of the gospel is that we now have fellowship with other believers in Christ. We have a shared experience of a common faith and a common trust in our Savior. This too has an objective sense to it. If you are in Christ then you have a common faith with other believers in Christ. Do you understand that if you are in Christ, you are in fellowship with other believers in Christ? It's not based on similarities of life, 
circumstances of life. It's not based on all of your shared experiences. It's not based on your social circles. It's not based on your financial status being the same. It's not based on liking similar things. It's not based on having the same political convictions. It's not based on coming from the same ethnic background. If you are in Christ and I am in Christ, then we are in fellowship with one another. We are in relationship with one another. There's an objectiveness to that truth. We all have shared in the experience of being brought into the fellowship with the Lord and our sins paid for and righteousness credited to us. The question is not whether we're in fellowship with each other. The question is, how are we going to live out that fellowship? What's the condition of our fellowship? This is something that's been tested quite a bit over the last 18 months. God's people have been given a lot of things to differ about. We've had lots of opportunities to break fellowship with one another over all kinds of things that are less important than the incarnation and the gospel. And there are always going to be opportunities for us to break fellowship over all kinds of things. But we need to remember as God's people that believing the gospel of God's grace brings us into fellowship, not only with the Lord God Almighty, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to be intentional and thoughtful and purposeful about pursuing things which strengthen those relationships, the fellowship that we have with each other. That means approaching each other with humility. It means working hard to not assume or to think the worst of each other. It means remembering the deeper connection that we have than things that we might differ about. And this fellowship that we would pursue with one another is meant to be a source of, of strengthening our assurance. An assurance of God's love and acceptance and delight over us. It is, as John is saying, as we pursue a fellowship that we have with one another, God uses that to strengthen our assurance and to build us up. So I just ask you the question, how are you doing in pursuing and strengthening, strengthening the fellowship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe particularly the ones that you don't know as well. Maybe particularly the ones that you at least perceive that you have differences of things about. God uses that fellowship, those relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ to strengthen our assurance. John mentions another fruit here that comes from the gospel that can strengthen our assurance. And it's in verse 4. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John said that he was writing these things. Now, what are these things? What are, what are the things he's been talking about? He's been talking about the person of Jesus. He's been talking about the work of Jesus. John says, as I write these things, as I write to you about Jesus, as I tell you about who he is, as he is divine and human, as I tell you about his work providing eternal life for us, I'm doing that so that our joy will be made complete. Now, normally, when we think of joy, we think of happiness. We think of smiles on the faces. We think of having a good time at a party or something like that. But biblical joy means more than that. It is deeper. It is more substantive. It is a deep peace and contentment that transcends the circumstances of life. 
Biblical joy is being so convinced of God's love and delight over us, of our fellowship with the Lord, that we have a deeply rooted peace and contentment and joy, even when life's circumstances aren't enjoyable. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to walk around always having a smile on our face, always pretending like we're happy, especially when life is hard. It doesn't mean that we don't get sad. It doesn't mean that we don't get down. It doesn't mean that we don't have seasons where we're discouraged and even depressed. But what it does mean is that we don't despair. We don't lose hope. And we persevere and endure to the end because there is a joy that is ours because the incarnation is true. Because the gospel of good news is true. And I want you to notice, it is a shared joy John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As we experience fellowship with our fellow believers in Christ, as we pursue relationships with one another, the Lord uses that as a means of filling us with a deep contentment and joy. John is is writing here in a sense that I'm writing these things that our joy would grow, that it would increase and be strengthened the more that we would live this way. Pursuing fellowship. Our joy will be strengthened. God uses that joy to also strengthen our assurance that all of these things are true. I heard a story this past week, a story I hadn't heard before. A story of a woman who was blind essentially her entire life, 94 years. When she was six weeks old, she developed an eye infection This was a long time ago, and the doctors that were treating her treated her with the best-known treatment at the time, which happened to be mustard poultices. If you're not sure what that is, it's basically taking mustard seeds and grinding them into a moist paste or gel and then putting them on and in the eyes. It damaged the optic nerve of this little girl and left her blind for the rest of her life. She couldn't see. Her family enrolled her as a student at the New York Institute of the Blind, where she went through school and graduated and eventually was brought back as a teacher for 11 years. And while she was there, she would often recite verses of poems and songs that she was working on in her head, and she would have people write those down for her. Often in that time period, there was a young man who was one of the secretaries there of the school who would often be the one that she would recite her songs and poems to. It was a young man, a 17-year-old Grover Cleveland, who twice served as president of the United States. One day, this young blind lady was invited to a friend's house. Her friend was named Phoebe Knapp. And Phoebe Knapp was in the process of having an organ installed in her home. And when uh, the blind friend came over, as they were waiting for the installation of this organ, Phoebe Knapp began to play on the piano that she had. She played a tune that she had been working on recently. She played it several times for the blind woman. And then she stopped and looked up and she said, What does that tune say to you? The blind woman thought for a moment. And then the blind woman that we know as Fanny Crosby said this. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. It's remarkable. Fanny Crosby was blind in her eyes, but she could see in the Spirit. 
She could see the certain assurance of God's love and God's acceptance for her through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though she was blind in her eyes, she could see the fellowship that she had with her creator because of the gospel being true. She felt that so much that in her hymn she wrote, Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. It's remarkable that this blind woman could see with such clarity. And yet, brothers and sisters in Christ, so often, we who can see with our eyes are blind to the truth of God's assurance for us in Jesus Christ. And John was writing this letter that we would know of God's love and God's acceptance to us in the gospel That because of the incarnation of the Son of God and because of His finished work on the cross, assurance is ours. That because of God's grace to us in the gospel, we now are in relationship with our Father in heaven. We are in fellowship with Him. That because of the grace of the gospel, we are now in fellowship and relationship with other believers in Christ. And that there is a joy that far transcends any life circumstance that I might be called to go through in this life that is mine. So as we go through this book, let's continually go out knowing and believing the gospel of God's grace, pursuing the fellowship that we have with one another, pursuing the biblical joy that is ours in Christ and resting in the assurance that we have because of both the content and the fruit of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much in our lives individually that causes us to doubt being in fellowship with you. There's so much in our life and in our world that causes us to doubt at times the fellowship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we pray that through the work of your spirit, as you take this letter and press it into our hearts and our minds, that we would more and more believe the truth of the fellowship that we have with you in Christ. And that that would drive us into greater assurance of the fellowship that we have with one another. And that you would use our fellowship with you and our fellowship with one another and the joy that comes from the gospel to strengthen our assurance. Help us, Father, we pray. Do this even this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.